One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Russian Shorts is a new series of thought-provoking books on key moments, ideas and figures in Russian history and culture, published by Bloomsbury Academic. Two volumes from the Russian Shorts series are now available as audiobooks for you to listen to whenever and wherever you want. Nuclear Russia by Paul Josephson explores the atom in Russian politics and culture from the 1930s to the present day while the multi-ethnic Soviet Union and its demise by Bridget O'Keefe looks at how the USSR responded to ethnic differences across its vast and diverse territory. Listen now on Audible. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. How are you, Alex? I'm very well, preparing, as we will no doubt cover in the rest of the podcast, to embark on my festival road trip, which Mm. will take me to Charleston, to Hay, to various points in between. Mm. The big book news, which will be kind of reverberate for a long time, I guess, is the death of Martin Amis at 73, which seems very young to me, I have to say. Yes, indeed. You just saw it sending real shockwaves through the literary world and beyond, actually, you know, mm. really up there, very high up on all the news bulletins. And uh, and it has prompted an extraordinary slew of really very interesting and insightful commentary from writers obviously from writers who knew him well from Ian McEwan to Salman Rushdie and from critics too it's been very sad but also very interesting reading Mm. and we have a piece in the TLS of course by Alan Jenkins who was our deputy editor for many years and a piece which evokes brilliantly the sort of power of his voice the power of voice for him which was you know paramount and also makes the very good point that though he was very, very funny, he took literature and his writing very seriously. And that's a very difficult balance, isn't it? Absolutely. We're going to be talking to the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, about this very thing a little bit later in the podcast. So coming up on this week's show, we asked some of the writers appearing at this week's Hay Festival their thoughts on the power of art and literature in a time of crisis. And Lucy Lethbridge grabs her bucket and spade and heads to the seaside. But first, it's festival season. 
Writers, politicians, actors, scientists, gardeners, musicians, all sorts of people, all converging on fields and halls across the land to meet their readers, and nowhere in such great numbers as at Hay on Wye. The Hay Festival kicks off this week, we're all headed there, and in this week's paper, a whole host of TLS contributors have given their thoughts on the power of art and literature to inform, educate and entertain in uncertain times. The TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, joins us now to talk us through some of their contributions. Hello, Toby. Hello. Well, I found this really interesting and I'm going to start with a confession. Good. Always a good start. Always a good start. <laughs> Not somebody who works in literary journalism or any kind of journalism to say, but my heart occasionally sinks when I think about roundups, what we might sort of in the office type scenario call a roundup. Because you think, is everyone sort of going to say the same? They really didn't in these they 25 really pieces. There's really that interesting. thing about all responding to the same question the same way. Of course. We have done symposia before, often in uh, alignment with Hay. And actually, they've always been pretty good. We did one on nature a couple of years ago. Again, you sort of think maybe that's always going to elicit the same answer. I think they're only given about 150 words, 200 words. But the range and breadth and actually the kind of clashing opinions on this one are fascinating, aren't they? You've got a real sense of conversation, which confession number two, when we started talking about this, I honestly thought that was a, a literal symposium and we all got to sort of well basically stand around trading high level thoughts with wine but it's not the case it's an on the page symposium that's kind of what we're doing now i mean i don't know if you're drinking wine but it's, <laughs> that's what the tls podcast is it's an ongoing symposium, little early it? in the day even for us loose literary types yeah wearing togas with goblets of strong unmixed wine <laughs> reclining i know i am i don't know about you two so, look, everyone here is evidently on the side of the arts and of literature, but you do, as we said, you've got a real variety of thoughts about what they can actually achieve in the world. What was the question that they were asked to consider, Toby? That's a good question, because I actually need to, need to get the precise question up on my screen right now. Well, it says, writers at the Hay Festival consider what art and literature can be or do in times of tension, conflict and destruction. Yeah, that distinction between be and do sets people off in very different directions, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, some people say, you know, you can't just assume that literature is just going to do something. I mean, I really liked Olivia Lang's line about ethical vitamins. You can't just treat it as ethical vitamins that you take and then suddenly you think more profoundly and empathetically. And Becca Rothfield, again, she says, it doesn't make anything happen. It's not nothing good or bad. It just, it is and we we respond to it. It's the Auden line and she said, you know, it's a cliche because it's true. But mm. then actually when it comes specifically to climate change, I thought this was really interesting. Two or three of the contributors really argued for the doingness of it. Don't they? Yes, they really did. I mean, Andrea Wolf was really interesting on that, I thought, yep, you know, and she was talking about, you know, an artist like Olafur Eliasson. She makes a link back to Novalis, doesn't she? And he said, we must poeticize philosophy. See, and the, yeah, exactly. Philosophy and the sciences, exactly, in order to make them tangible. And then Tom Bullock takes a very sort of similar line. And there's a really nice quote, which I'm going to read. He says, we belong to the culture that caused the emergency. And this is our job as writers to lead that culture. Put simply, our future depends on a reinvention of ourselves around completely different stories. So it's about how we can alter our worldview, how we can alter our relationship with nature. And that really does, I think, speak very much to the heart of the current minute. It really does. And it's about that for people who tell stories, got to tell different stories now. 
or certainly at least reconsider the old stories. And then if the stories shape the way you think, then that's how you change things. Exactly. And then for others, it's about the eternal. So it's not about speaking to the moment at all. So, And then there are different notions of this, aren't there? So you've got James Hall, who's an art critic, and he just talks about the constellations of beauty, the vitality and sublimity of in Van Gogh in particular, which I thought was interesting. Art is ecstasy, he says. Art is ecstasy, absolutely. It's brilliant, that piece. But he does say... He says the therapeutic qualities of music are familiar, but visual art forms have been even more curative and transformative. And I would stick a little finger up there and say, well, they might be for some people, but that sounds like a sort of league table. (laughs) I would put music above (laughs) art in that way, but that's just because that's how different people respond differently, you know, to different art forms, don't they? And it's funny that some people here have just assumed that it means books. They go, oh yeah, books. Focused on writing, poetry. And then... Andrew Motion, I thought this was interesting, especially reading it alongside James Hall. He also talks about sort of truth and beauty, but it's not about pretty beauty. It's, he, he refers to grim verities. And he says, by squaring up to them, trying to understand them better, we find more steadfast ways to endure them. So it's not about distracting ourselves. I think Brenda Navarro also said mm-hmm. the importance, what it can allow you to do, Art, is to confront tragedy. It can't change it but it can allow you to confront it there was also i was very very reassured by this an actual neuroscientist's point of yes. view hannah critchlow yes who says no yeah. this is a proper physiological change that happens in the brain when we interact with art or writing or listen to music our brain is actually changing its pathways are changing and and there's a few children's writers too who make that point that it actually shapes children's brains Yes. So in that sense, it's very important what it's being and doing. There's a real dichotomy, just to go back to that idea, because some people do say that it gives comfort or consolation, you know, or something like that. And some people are very clear that it doesn't, and that's not what it's there for, and that's not its job. And people are sort of equally strong on either way. That's Andrew Motion, you know, says the expectation of providing comfort is not, you know, that's not what it's about. But in a way, James Hall says it does do that. There's real, not exactly opposing views, but they're certainly... I'd say they're parallel rather than Parallel, do you reckon? Contrasting, yeah. I thought Ben Hutchinson's one was very interesting as well. There's a line he says when he says, one thing art and literature can do is remind us that there are other ways of living and dying. And he makes this very good point that, you know, it's not always necessarily on the right side of history. I mean, you know, he points to the modernists, he sympathises with fascism. So in terms of the kind of politics, it's not so much about how it's has got things right or wrong, but it's about placing us in history, in conversation with the dead. And he talks about the democracy Mm. of the dead, which is a phrase from G.K. Chesterton, which I thought was very Mm. interesting. He also brilliantly calls it a glitter ball of meaning. Yes. (laughs) It says art captures this hope, love, purpose, and mirrors it back to us, a glitter ball of meaning. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's a great phrase. It really is. I have to say, I thought perhaps the real kind of standout bit that I kind of went, wow, that's amazing, was Lindsay Hilson's Mm. piece. And it it went from, you know, she was saying, well, she's been reporting on Ukraine. She's been reading the First World War poets. So, you know, they evidently maintain that kind of meaning in extremists. But she also says that the Ukrainian government has created a website for people to post poems on for everyone to read during the war, which was just fascinating. I didn't know that. I've read this elsewhere. There's been a tremendous outpouring of poetry obviously the Ukrainian language is so central to the the kind of the cultural conflict that's going on alongside the actual you know 
physical and political one. And I think writing has become a very, very powerful weapon. And I don't mean that trivially, but I think it really has become very, very important. And yeah, I've read about uh, mushrooming of bookshops in, in Ukraine, in various Ukrainian cities. And I read a piece in The Guardian actually a couple of weeks ago about this, about the mushrooming of bookshops and how blackouts, one of the kind of more positive effects of blackouts, horrendously grim though it has been through the winter, is with phones down and internet down, just the simple matter of reading by candlelight has become a huge thing and also kind of a means of resistance. I just think that was really, really interesting. Well, it's echoed elsewhere, isn't it, in this set of pieces. Irina Dimitrescu, I found that also fascinating, talking about women political prisoners in the Romanian gulags telling stories to one another. That was fascinating. And also Irene Vallejo on the library project for children in Medellin. Yes, exactly. And this idea that it's sort of rather than taking us away from things, but actually Irina Dimitrescu talks about giving shape to time. So in times of Mm. crisis, you know, the very nature of time and how we get through the days becomes so skewed and we become so alienated from the normal world that the idea that reading gives shape to this. And actually Ben Markovitz has a similar thing. He talks about Mm. getting through the days. Mm. His contribution also brings up that idea of actually personal inflection moments because he says he's been listening to podcasts while he's been undergoing chemotherapy and he's also been reading Trollope and Trollope is the great comfort in a certain way even though it has many many horrible things and horrible people in it there is something so reassuring about Trollope he is bang on the money there I think that very much ties in with the idea doesn't it like Toby said of shaping the day and not just having something to do but feeling that you have achieved something or maybe shifted a little bit that thing about you know that it being able to shift the way you think or you think you've entered into a, someone else's way of thinking a little bit so you feel like you've done something productive sounds awful because it's not about what you produce but the feeling that you've achieved something in your day maybe well that goes alongside another theme that comes out of these pieces which is the theme of reading outside your your personal experience i mean vanessa chan writes about i suppose what you might call fiction that's sort of post exoticization it's people writing about events and settings and contexts and bits of history and bits of geography from an actual, you know, understanding, a close-up rather than a kind of Western model of reading about somebody interpreting it. And that came through quite a lot. Dua Lipa also talks about that. Yeah, I thought Dua Lipa's choices were interesting, actually. I thought they were very, very thoughtful. She refers to The Road, Cormac McCarthy, but she also talks about um, Khalid Husseini, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and the Sudanese poet Emi Mahmoud's masterpiece Mama, which I'm, af- I'm afraid I don't know. I don't know if you know it, either of you, Alex. No, I don't know. No, I'm afraid not, no. She says it's a really important book for understanding the current violence in Sudan. So I think that's one that I'll certainly be picking up at some stage. So ultimately, when we had read through these pieces, which I, like I said, did find really fascinating, and also they, in cases like Dua Lipa, you've just been talking about, they do function as a kind of a way to make a reading list, don't they? They function as good suggestions for things you haven't known about. But um, what do we think? We've come out at the end thinking, yes, literature can be meaningful in times of trouble and conflict and uncertainty, or, oh, but can it really make a difference? I think yes and yes, but not always. (laughs) And it depends what you mean by difference. Brilliant equivocal answer. It's not going to win a war, but it is going to maybe help people think differently about their relationship with the world. And, you know, these effects aren't always immediately tangible. They are also enormous over time, aren't they? Yeah, and then that it can change 
people individually or it can have an effect on people individually. And yes, Toby says it, it might not change policy, but if you change enough, I don't mean change enough minds, but if you, you know, get people to think differently or with different imagination or empathy, then you might find a different a different way around things, whatever they are, whether they're, you know, personal, some people talking about personal personal crises that they've got or global ones. Everybody seems to be pretty broadly pro, which is good. Yes. <laughs> and there is, we should say, a kind of, you know, we must argue for the importance of pleasure too. Pleasure is actually something that we would not only want to have for ourselves, but would like all people to have. And, and pleasure in itself is of valuable. Course. It's like the idea of it being vitamins. Yes, exactly. But not, Claire Levin, for example, vitamins. chooses Jane Austen, but it's partly for pleasure and it's for, you know, the kind of the eternal pleasures. I think what's interesting as well is, you know, this question was not asked in a vacuum, but everyone seemed to have a very clear idea of present crisis and the idea mm. of present crisis, and perhaps twas ever thus, you know, when have we not been in a crisis, but whether they were thinking about war or they were thinking about climate change, those are the two specific things really that came out apart from personal crisis. No one sort of, there wasn't any sense of crisis, what crisis was there? Everyone seemed very sure yes. that yeah. we are living in a very, very difficult time and given the importance of art and literature to all these people, that, you know, it remains as important as it always did. And the sort of permacrisis, if you like, it has in no way stopped the need for it. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of something that we talked about actually at last year's Hay Festival with Lise Doucette and the book of short stories by the women from Afghanistan. Do you remember? Yes. Was it My Pen is a... My pen wing. is a bird. That right? It was a bird, a bird, actually, not a wing. Yeah. There were some extraordinary stories there. And some of them were about kind of conflicts in society. And some of them were about just the people getting by and living. And the importance of hearing those voices and the importance to them of writing and being able to write and perform creatively, I guess, even in incredibly difficult circumstances. Do you know you were both right there? It's my pen is it's the, the wing, wing of, of a bird. bird. Yes, I realised as I said well it. Done. <laughs> <laughs> it was new fiction by Afghan women and it was it was just wonderful to talk about, wasn't it? Mm, mm, yeah, it was. Yeah. This is coming through, of course, in lots of the events that are actually happening at Hay, including, I know, Toby, things that you're involved in. Just tell us what you're up to. And So I'm, I'm up in Hay very start of June for a couple of days. And actually, the first event I'm doing, this could not be more pertinent to that event because it is about the event I'm doing. It's called Documenting the War. It's about the war in Ukraine. And I'm talking to three writers and activists about their approach to documenting it. So the three are Alexandra Matvichuk, who is the director of the Centre of Civil Liberties, which actually won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. It was one of the organisations that shared the Peace Prize. And basically what she's been doing for about 10, 11 years is documenting well, initially threats to democracy in Ukraine, which was essentially threats to democracy foisted on the Ukrainians by Russia, but more recently atrocities committed by Russians, firstly post-2014 in Crimea and other Russian-occupied territories, and then obviously in the last 15 months or so since the full-scale invasion. And so she's doing the very grim and harrowing and necessary 
sort of legally and politically and emotionally job of documenting these crimes. Then you've got Serhi Jadan, who will be very familiar to Alex, amongst yes, others. Yes, indeed. The winner of our prize, as I like to think of it. The winner of our prize, so the EBRD prize, which Alex and I judged last year, and which I'm chairing for the final year. He won it for the orphanage, which is, as Alex will agree, we chose it together along with a couple other people, a beautiful and brilliant and harrowing book about the war in, in the Donbass, you know, written for the full-scale invasion, but when war in Ukraine was still very much a reality to lots of people. And also he's, a, as well as a novelist, he's a poet, he's the lead singer in a ska band, and the ska band are coming, all of them, to Hay to perform, which will be wow. fascinating. Um, and he's also there in the East. He lives in uh, Kharkiv, excuse my pronunciation, and he's helping, not quite on the front lines, but I think he's helping on the back lines, as it were, supplying food, helping to supply ammunition. I will find out more precisely what he's been doing, but he's he's very much involved. And then the third interview is Halina Kruk, who is both a medieval scholar, a scholar of medieval literature and history, and also a poet. And she's been writing a lot of war poetry. And again, as we were discussing earlier, both Serhi Jadan and Halina Kruk have been posting their poems online in dialogue with other poets, but also just readers as part of this ongoing conversation. So it should be a really, really fascinating discussion. And I'll be very, yeah, I will be very, very keen to hear their thoughts on exactly what we've just been discussing on the, on the power of art and literature in times of war and, you know, their livingness at the moment. And actually, I've just been reading, so Hijadan has written a book, a war diary called The Sky Above Kharkiv, which has just been translated into English. And one of the first things he writes in the introduction is after the full-scale invasion, he lost all interest in reading and in writing. But obviously that came back. So I'll be interested to know how and why and to what extent it came back and what it meant for him. So that's one of my talks. You're also talking to Eleanor Catton, aren't you? And of course, that's the other theme that we've been discussing. Exactly. So I'm talking to Eleanor Catton and she's written this brilliant novel. Alex, I'm pretty sure you've read it, haven't you? I read it really quite recently and then I saw her at a festival and I did a terrible, I, I sort of fangirled her outside the loo. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I will try not to do that. Yeah, do try not event, to do anyway. that. <laughs> I think it's great that you did. I've got no, no judgment on that. <laughs> so I enjoyed it so much. It's so propulsive and it's, it's funny so... and it and actually you learn lots of stuff about you know mostly you learn about gorilla gardening and you know rare earth metals and their extraction from nature reserves so it's, it's her new book burnham wood which came out a few weeks ago and claire loudon reviewed it for us and loved it having not liked the luminaries which is the book of prize winning novel by eleanor catton that was her previous novel about 10 years ago so i really liked burnham wood and she was right to because it is brilliant and it's very very tightly written it is very propulsive I mean, it is basically a thriller you know there's a death that may or may not be a murder or a homicide. I um, mean, you know, it's called Burnham Wood for a reason. Um, there are Macbethian echoes, although it's not kind of larded on too thick. And it's basically, it is, as Alex was saying, it's about, it's about climate change. It's about the way we plunder the earth. It's about this group of, this sort of cooperative of guerrilla gardeners who get involved for various reasons in this site in a remote part of New Zealand where a rapacious capitalist is busy and undercover extracting these rare earth minerals for sale around the world and about how those two entities essentially come together and it's very very good so yeah I'm really looking forward to talking to Eleanor Catton too. It's brilliant on groupthink as well isn't it and the, yes. the sort of like actually the kind of comedy of this eco group. So yes exactly although you have the goodies and the baddies the guerrilla gardeners are certainly 
good and the rapacious capital is certainly bad but i mean she's very she's very gently funny about that group and they're sort of the silliness of a lot of them the kind of the clashing egos and the group think as you say vanity of small differences all of that kind of stuff and yeah exactly she's really clever about all that our listeners will think we've been practicing rehearsing our segues till they're this perfect but it is you mentioned Claire Loudon <laughs> there both in this set of contributions and also the reviewer of Eleanor Catton we had her on the podcast a few weeks ago didn't we Lucy talking about the Rachel papers at 50 and I mean of course you know in the light of Martin Amos's death this weekend that piece, talking to her about it, had a retrospective kind of feel because she was talking about his existence as a writer in her life as a reader over many, many years, wasn't she? She was, yes. And it was a sort of a retrospective. I mean, it was a rereading, really, particularly of the Rachel papers, wasn't it? And the funny thing was, she said when she went back to it, she thought, oh, gosh, it's going to be awful. I'm worried I won't like it. And she absolutely loved it. Loved it more, I think, than when yeah, she read it the first time, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, More exactly. and in a different way, and she kind of went through why that was. Yeah, it was a really brilliant kind of evocation and revisiting of the same work. And she talked about how she felt the first time and then how she felt the second time. The cover of that issue had Martin Amos posing alongside a pinball machine, and I hadn't realised that that was the pinball machine he bought with the advance to the Rachel papers. And his partner and now very sadly widow, Isabel Fonseca, got in touch with me just after the piece and asked if we could send a few copies of the paper out to her because I think she really liked the picture. And she said, that's certainly the purchase that he's made that has given him most pleasure throughout his life. <laughs> I thought it was a really nice detail. <laughs> and, and, you know, particularly moving um, in the light of his very sad death. But yes, it's a lovely yeah. piece. I mean, Toby, you know, you spend your life working with reviewers of fiction. You review fiction yourself. You're aware of the whole landscape in, in an intricate and intimate way. I mean, this really is a, it's an epoch defining moment, isn't it? Without being too, too grandiose, but it really is. No, it is. It is. And, you know, it's been very hard to get away for the past 30 or 40 years from the great generation, the so-called great generation, the grant of best of generation from the 80s, Amos, McEwen. Rushdie, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and you know he really was a huge part of that. He was obviously very much his own writer and his own person, and you know he preceded the eighties. You know the Rachel Papers came out in nineteen seventy three, but he has been, I think, the kind of the towering figure of English letters. Whether or not we as critics necessarily always think that, certainly in the minds of lots of readers, and you ask a person to name an English novelist, he's going to come high up on the list, isn't he? And it does feel like, yeah, a huge kind of epoch defining moment this and I think I'll probably remember him most I mean obviously his novels some are extraordinary some I find maddening some I love some I reread some I never want to read again his criticism as well Martin Amos is critic I think he's just an extraordinary extraordinary reader and everyone's talked about his style you know his novels were more about style than plot that was the entire point of them style came first but his style as a critic as well I think it was just totally brilliant. Absolutely. The thing that's really stayed with me that I will definitely reread is Experience. Yes, it's brilliant. His memoir. It's so brilliant. And it's very sad and very funny and insightful. And, and incredibly all of those humane. Things. Yes, yes. Is it a little bit gentler, do you think? I don't yes. know. Maybe it's not. It's yeah. not that he's not gentle. It's himself, still full of coruscating but... humour yeah, and, you know, wryness. Yeah. And... <laughs> and inside story, Lucy, when you've revisited experiences, is it just a later memoir, a, 
a wonderful work. There's a very good piece, if I'm allowed to refer to another publication, by James Wood in The New Yorker, looking back on Amos's life and career and writings. And he just picks out some wonderful phrases that have just stayed in his mind. And as critics, I think there was one that was really wonderful. It was about Amos's character, Richard Tull, in The Information, which I think is a brilliant book, one of his best books. And it talked about how good he was as a reviewer. And he said, when Richard Tull reviewed a book, it stayed reviewed. It was very, very good. <laughs> and, there, and there is also a very, very good piece in this week's TLS. Yes, in the only Alan publication Jenkins, that matters. Yeah. In the only publication that matters, perhaps alongside the New Yorker, who knows, by Alan Jenkins, the former deputy editor of the TLS for many, many years, who knew Amos a bit personally and was a huge mm. admirer of her, his work. And again, he talks about his style and his voice and how intrinsic that was to everything he did. And it's really well, well worth reading. Mm, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to end, if I may, with a very small recollection of a fleeting of many years ago making a podcast with Martin Amos and Ian McEwan, and I. I think I asked Amos something about you know the kind of contemporary writers, novelists that he read now, and he he said, "Oh, I don't know if I really do now. It's more a question of settling in for the evening and reading a bit of good old me." which I, I think was absolutely definitely not true and definitely no. a joke, but really, really, but I have never forgotten it. It just made me laugh so much. That's pretty funny. <laughs> that's well, very no. funny. Yeah, that's a very good way to think about him settling in for the evening. <laughs> Toby, thank you so much for coming to see us. Listeners, last year, uh, Toby and I intersected at Hay at Lucy 2, and I had to give them a lift somewhere in my battered road trip beige Fiat 500L, which was at the end of a long road trip. And Toby, all I'm saying is that I will clean it this time, should that come to pass again. I, I don't think you should. It was all part of its charm. <laughs> I, I no, love that road trip. <laughs> Charm. Charm is... It's character. Should we say character? character? Let's say character. Toby, thank you so much. Safe travels to Hay and we'll see you there. Great. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks. Still to come on the show... Lucy Lethbridge on the decline and fall of the British seaside. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, what do you think of when you think of the English seaside? Seagulls, sandcastles, chips, fun and games, faded out-of-date glitz? Maybe all of those things mixed up together. As the jolly old music hall number goes, we do like to be beside the seaside. Or at least we did. 
There's a new book out called The Seaside England's Love Affair by Madeline Bunting. And we have a splendid review of it by Lucy Lethbridge, who joins us today, complete with Kiss Me Quick Hat and Bucket and Spade, I imagine. Lucy, many thanks for joining us. Very good to be here. I'd just like to start with asking, where does Madeline Bunting go in her quest for the English seaside? What sort of geography does she encompass? Well, she covers an astonishing amount of ground. She starts off in Yorkshire, which is the site of her childhood holidays, where she was used to holiday near Scarborough. So she goes to Scarborough, then down to Lincolnshire, to Skegness, and then she loops around East Anglia. So East Anglians are going to feel disappointed. She doesn't go to Yarmouth and Cromer and places. She bypasses that and goes down to Kent, to Margate and Broadstairs, and then to Sussex, around the bottom of the south coast, and then a little bit to Cornwall, and around sort of Padstow, and then up again the other side to Morecambe and the northwest. So, yeah, almost the whole lot. I mean, everyone yes. will find a gap, as she herself acknowledges. Lots of favourites will have been missed out, but she covers mm. a lot of ground. I mean, the thing that immediately comes to mind with that list of her itinerary is just how very different all those places are from each other and, and different parts of the country. I mean, they're just, they've all got such incredibly distinct characters, haven't they? Well, yes, I think the interesting thing about the English seaside is is that they are very distinct. And yet they're also very the same because mm. they all all these resorts sort of rise up together. There's a sort of 19th century moment of the resort. And so that they have sort of similarities of architecture. They have promenades and piers. There's a look that emerges which enshrines the seaside, I think, forever, the English seaside, in the shape of the sort of the Grand Hotel, the Esplanade, the parkland behind the holidaymaker utopia that was created by architects and rich Victorians. Mm. When you say that, you say that she starts the book in Scarborough. And when you say the Grand Hotel, the pier, you know, this one, I just think you mean Scarborough, because for me, that's what those <laughs> things are. And I think you mean the Grand in Eastbourne, you see, there but, you go. <laughs> but I think if you went to Hastings, you would find it different. It would have its own distinctive feeling of grand, but it would look and feel very familiar. Mm. So she spent her childhood holidays in Brunswick. Is that right? I've never heard of Brunswick and it's not far from Scarborough. I mean, I hadn't heard of it either. But I, as I understand from her description, it's not really a holiday resort in quite the same way that Scarborough was in that it's not built on the same scale. It's more of a kind of bucket and spade, swallows and Amazons sort of place. You summed it up brilliantly. More middle class swallows and Amazons than Scarborough. Rockpool's not crazy golf. I think that's the impression that she gives. Yeah. I mean, Scarborough itself is split into different areas, isn't it? Because of the South Bay, which is the more crazy golf, kiss me quick end, and the North Bay, which we always used to consider very posh. But of course, as you say, the grand bit, the grand architectural bit is in the South Bay of Scarborough. And as you said, it was very grand, wasn't it? That was where the great and the good went on holiday. That You can see it in the scale of the architecture and the beauty of it. The British seaside is strange in the sense that it has two very distinct, well, actually three very distinct periods, and it's always the same. So before we discovered the seaside as a place of leisure, the seaside was poor. I mean, no one wanted to live near the sea. Nothing grew there. It was dry. It was yeah. the edges. It was the weather was difficult to cope with, and it was inhabited by poor fisher people, you know, who scraped a living on the edges. 
But then the discovery of the sea as a healing, a watery cure changed everything. That was the end of the 17th century. And throughout the 18th century, and then very particularly in the middle of the 19th century, you get the coasts being redeveloped as places of retreat for people who are ill. And of course, that makes them very middle class, very upper middle class. They're people who have leisure. They have time to retire from the world of routine, to take the air, to take the water, change of climate, to walk slowly along the promenade. And all this architecture is built to satisfy this demand for rest and mild exercise and diversion. Was it still, though, a sort of poor relation to, for example, going to Venice or to France or somewhere like that? I mean, it's not quite the sort of death in Venice cosmopolitanism that you get at an English seaside, even if you are going there as a more moneyed visitor. I, I wonder if there's always been a slight difference between the British seaside and everywhere else, Europe. Yes, quite. Po- I mean, I think in the 19th century, there is much more a visiting spa towns in Europe, which would have been the equivalent. I don't think you go to Venice for your health ever. The bad air off the canals, that sort of thing. Mm. Exactly. The bad air, The you wouldn't have gone to Rome for your health either because there was malaria and so on. But you might have, I suppose, if you weren't going to Scarborough, you might go to Baden-Baden. So I suppose in that sense, maybe Scarborough is the slightly cheaper alternative. But I don't think the distinction was that acute, perhaps until later in the 19th century, when going abroad for long, long periods becomes much more the mark of money and status. Lucy, I honestly, I read this piece and I felt like I was reading parts of my own sort of biography. I was born in Torquay. My mother was born in Eastbourne, ran away from it and went back in sort of towards the end of her life with my dad in tow and said it was all right. I said, why are you moving back to Eastbourne? You hated that. I remember she was a very dramatic person. And I remember once we went for a visit to family and she stood at the train station and said, this town is death to me. I was about seven at this point. So this is why (laughs) I've got a slightly melodramatic air. But she went back and I said, why are you moving back? You don't like it. And she said, well, it's all right now because I'm going to be living above the pier. She was brought up below the pier. So there was an absolute distinction. She was brought up in the rows of terraced houses, sort of on the lower side, and then went to live in in a flat on the upper side where you could see kind of beachy head. But then I also grew up in Essex. So you mentioned um, Walton on the Nays, which I remember from school trips, very kiss me quick, and Frinton, so posh that the highlight was getting your lunch at Anne's Cafe, where you might have a Welsh rarebit. That does sound posh. Frinton is very particularly curious, isn't it? Because it is. has consciously resisted any attempts at vulgarisation. I think there's no pub in Frinton. Is that right? I think they had a ban on fish and chip shops and pubs, didn't they? And they've kind of recently relaxed it. Though one imagines that they might be, you know, really quite nice pubs and really quite nice fish and chip shops. But it's very much not going to the... It's not slot machines, is it? Well, I've always imagined Frinton is like a a kind of toy town, you know, wonderful kind of incredibly flattened green grass and lovely, comfortable little houses, like a sort of, you know, like a garden city, you know, created, a created utopia. Lovely bowling greens, probably. We're going to get furious letters from Frintonites, aren't we? Maybe we are. <laughs> I can't see how anywhere would be utopia if it didn't have a fish and chip shop. And well, I have to say also a pub, but 
maybe that's just me a very 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 quiet utopia <laughs> yes yeah, very quiet with no fish and chips and no drinking is madeline bunton is she celebrating the seaside or is it a kind of historical anthropological look at it or is it a memoir or a survey what kind of book is it well i think it seems to me to be mainly a journalistic book in the sense that it is going to places and seeing why they're in decline. She's asking the question of why these great, huge edifices of high Victoriana, uh, which were once splendid and magnificent and places of sort of fantasy and imagination, have dwindled into some of the most impoverished and badly served communities in the country. So that is the question she's seeking to answer. And there are so many factors that actually it is impossible to find one answer to that question because they encapsulate, I think, so many of the social changes of the last 100 years. And she winds through it some literature and reading and th- and so on. But But mainly her exercise is to see what they are like now. I was really interested in that you said that she wrote a lot of this book during the pandemic or did a lot of her trips during the pandemic. And of course, an out of season seaside town is vastly different from an in season one. And it it was sort of all out of season during the pandemic. And sometimes they can be quite desolate places, can't they, when they're emptied out of people? I wondered if that sort of came through in the book. Well, I think what was sort of interesting about doing it in lockdown, as I understood it, was that some places absolutely boomed. So places like Southwold, you know, with the growth of the staycation, you know, people absolutely swarmed to the British seaside. But some remained even more left out than they had been before, because there is this distinction between those that are on the up or apparently on the up. And again, what she finds and describes very well is the places that have become fashionable, like Whitstable. You know, Mm. there are these little pockets or Margate, which has its Tate and St Ives and so on. On the one hand, they've got lots of dinky little shops selling pieces of driftwood and, you know, fashionable knickknacks and Michelin-starred restaurants and so on. But on the other hand, that, of course, drives prices up. You get a B&B culture, which, you know, removes long-term rental from local people. So locals can no longer afford to live in these little sort of capsules. And so you get the kind of Newmargate, but jostling alongside Newmargate is the old depressing Margate, which is even more depressed than it was before, even more excluded and left out and poor. Mm. And actually, I think Margate is a particular example of it, isn't it? Because it only lasts for a street or two. I've always thought that there's a sort of obvious place where the shops suddenly start getting really expensive. And then two streets back, they're really not. Another place close to my heart is Whitby, where I also used to go, which has now become incredibly popular and very expensive. And it's it's difficult to know what the balance is, isn't it? Because it's lovely Whitby and it's very well kept and it's nice that people want to go there, but but then it's not nice, as you say, if the people who live there can no longer rent or buy or afford to live there. Yes, they've lost the sort of sense of their function, which I think is a problem of communities where which are completely dependent on tourism as well. They're dependent on one thing, but that only really works for them properly is that proper prosperity only lies in real tourism which is family-run hotels and airbnb doesn't really spread it about very much and you know 
when people are living in caravan parks rather than coming to hotels, then it becomes a sort of day tripper place rather than a place where people actually want to come and stay for any length of time. Yeah. Now, I have to say, Whitby actually works in the winter as well because of the Goths, who are relatively oh, new course, in Port Dracula, Whitby, but the Goths the love to go there. Yeah, they love to go there at Halloween and when the weather is wild. And uh, and actually, it's totally brilliant, Whitby, when the weather's awful. I've been there many times when the weather's awful. And it's Lucy, very Lucy, you're very, very well aware from this podcast of my devotion to the popular art form of TV. And I have <laughs> to say, it's a wonderful social document of a programme, I think. But I do love a Vera. And Vera, a detective series, absolutely encapsulates this sort of haves and have-nots and left-behind seaside places with gorgeous, gorgeous places like no other programme. I think it's completely brilliant for that. Where is it set? Well, it's set on the in Northumberland. She's Northumberland City Police. Ah, oh, sorry, I don't. I really don't I've never well, seen. Well, I know you're always reading a book or sort of <laughs> studying opera or something. No. But you know, for those of us who occasionally let ourselves watch the telly, it's perfect on the seaside and it's so much in our culture I was thinking about this thinking one novel that I absolutely adore The Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff which is about you know the family and their two weeks every single year at the same place and it is sort of absolutely encapsulates again kind of class anxiety and it's just so so good and I was also thinking of Ian Sinclair's Dining on Stones, which has a lot of Hastings in it. And, and Hastings is a, a kind of particularly interesting place too. Does she get there? No, I don't think she goes to Hastings or only very briefly. But Hastings is interesting, isn't it? Because half of it is actually very fashionable and rather expensive and all those lovely Decimus Burton crescents and so on. Well, many of them have been bought up and made into kind of smart houses for London incomers. And then there's a large sort of chunk right in the middle, which is, as you say, completely the opposite, like Margate is untouched, crumbly, poor, it's full of slot machines and crazy golf. I have a great love for slot machines and crazy golf, but I take your point if you actually... (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't necessarily represent, it represents, as I say, the kind of day tripper holiday. Yeah. Yeah. The day tripper rather than the long term holiday. Mm-hmm. You say in the book there's a bit of distance as Madeleine Bunting observes and sort of comments on places, and the distance makes it can make it feel a bit awkward sometimes. Yes, I think slightly inevitable, really. I mean, she is a, a journalist dropping in from London, and I don't get the impression. In fact, I think she I don't think she tries to pretend she spends very long at each place, and she can't, and it's partly due to lockdown that she can't. So there is that slight inevitable feeling of, yeah, the London cosmopolitan dropping in, being a bit shocked and going home again. I Mm. did love that detail that she tried to get into Butlins in Minehead. They wouldn't let her go and spend two hours and do a sort of journalistic kind of drive-by. I thought, well, no, I don't think I would if I'd been Butlins either. Well, actually, she eventually does go to Butlins under her own steam and she does spend a couple of days there. But yes, I think there is this... I mean, but that's the divide, isn't it? You know, people don't want to have their pleasures laughed at. Well, no, of course. Quite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that people don't like journalists from London, but they might not like a journalist from London who didn't actually want to, you know, join in or eat the food or that be in the Nobelini's competition. Do you know what I mean? If all you do is stand there for an hour and write on your notepad. I'm not saying yeah. that's what she did, but you can see that there might be a 
maybe it's about sort of participation or observation. Maybe it's something like that, do you think? I mean, she does talk quite evocatively about her own childhood and her love of visiting Scarborough and so on. So I think that, like a lot of us, she has a kind of innate and instinctive feeling for the English seaside. But I think it's been quite a long time, one feels, since she experienced that as a child or even as a family. There is the feeling of tripping in. And I suppose that that is really one of the problems of why they are in such decline is that this gulf has widened, hasn't it, between about where we go on holiday. I mean, where we go on holiday is now such a sort of signifier of status and income and so on. And it's essentially cheap flights and package holidays that sort of sounded the death knell for the English seaside. Yeah, it was that in the 1960s. It's the search for sun or reliable sun. Mm. I have to say, I've been sunburned many times in Scarborough, but the reason is we never used to think we would get sunburned. We'd be like, no, not in Scarborough. So you didn't put any sunscreen on. and then You'd be very surprised when there was a bit of sun and everyone would get burned. Because it's windy. Yeah, yeah. Also, don't do that, everybody. That's not a good approach to, to being out on the beach. That's the English sun experience is the surprise of wind, isn't it? The surprise of the hot wind. Yeah, yes, exactly. Is she at all optimistic? about the future of the English seaside, or is it all kind of, does she think it's all in decline and an intractable problem, as it were? Well, she does speak to a lot of people who are, you know, trying to make a difference. But the problem is it always seems to be, as I understood from her book, it always seems to be terribly short term. So you get Banksy, you get these kind of big flash, slightly camp kind of seaside extravaganzas and we all think fantastic oh look isn't it lovely I must I must visit Totnes or you know Whitstable or wherever so you get Banksy going into Western Supermare with this he did this sort of I don't know sort of installation theme park installation called Dismaland mm. which got a lot of publicity for a bit and raised several million and had a lot of visitors but then, you know, a month later, it was all over and they've all gone and no one's quite knows where the money went to. And Western Supermare is exactly as it always is. It was, which is, you know, a slightly seasonal, struggling place where people don't stay long enough to really, you know, bring us any real prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I should ask, we've been talking about our places. Do you have a place that's close to your heart at all? My childhood holidays were spent in East Anglia, which is the one chunk. Where she doesn't go. (laughs) No, she didn't go. So I love all that sort of flat land coast. We used to go to Southwold a lot in the days when it was rather, uh, it was sort of old lady genteel. And rather than, I mean, now it's kind of Notting Hill on sea. It's very posh now. It's It's very very posh. (laughs) You know, and Albra also, Mm. similarly very posh. We used to go to Wolberswick. That's lovely, yeah. And it was absolutely lovely. And it was, you know, it was sort of crab fishing and buckets and spades and so on. I do remember as a child absolutely longing to go abroad. I used to sit there thinking, gosh, everyone else is in Portugal. Mm. <laughs> I suppose the nostalgia is, you know, maybe one gets nostalgic with age with these things for something that maybe never never quite as we remember it. This is the sort of key part, isn't it, in a way that one thing she really is doing 
is seems to me from reading about the book is writing about these populations who are there all the time. For us, it's a kind of it's all a sort of seaside of the mind in a way, isn't it? And a seaside of the mind of the past, the child's mind. Yeah, she's interesting on that, actually. She's interesting on the extent to which that they have their kind of fantasies that have come to represent things. They have to stand, you know, these great decaying resorts do stand for things, but people forget that standing for something doesn't do any good for, you know, the guy who's living in a bed and breakfast who can't afford a local house and who's got no job. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, or the stuckness of them, and the way that they don't flourish or they only flourish in pockets. So should we all be going to the English seaside for our holidays? I feel like I feel like the answer is yes. I think we should. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Do I have to go, though? Because I live in Ireland. Can't I go to the Irish you seaside? You can go to the Irish seaside, yes, you can. <laughs> you can cross over to Anglesey. I can cross over to Anglesey. Actually, I frequently, and, and this talks back to our podcast of last week, doesn't it, Lucy? I'm frequently en route to Fishguard. Yes. And we talked yeah, about yeah. the Irish Sea last week. And yes, mm. Fishguard certainly certainly has some of those feeling of it. That's the Welsh seaside, of course. But um, yeah. That's actually partly what we're talking about. And you mentioned it in your review, Lucy, the liminality. You say she talks about the liminality a lot about it's kind of it's half this and half that and it hasn't quite got one foot in either. Well, I think that is slightly the kind of it's trying to make of the seaside that it has to sort of stand for something in our own cultural imagination. And I think that, again, this feeling that the seaside is a sort of rather ephemeral place that, you know, is both facing out to sea. It can only go inland or out to sea in the seaside, can't you? Mm. So mm. it is these little sort of pockets of that, that are stranded. And she's good on that. Mm. Okay, well, let's all get our buckets and spades and head out variously, see what we can do to go and um, enjoy the grand architecture and maybe even an ice cream, maybe even a bit of sunburn. Don't take that approach. No, factor 50 all the way. <laughs> yes, fact, exactly. Factor 50. We have learned some things. Ice cream is not lunch, sadly. <laughs> Always take your factor 50 and quite a warm coat just in case. <laughs> exactly. Lucy Lethbridge, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. time for this week our thanks go to toby lishtig and lucy lethbridge and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.